From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. Abortion access is under attack again. The Supreme Court just heard arguments in June Medical Services versus Russo. The case will decide whether or not a Louisiana law that requires abortion providers to have the ability to admit patients to a nearby hospital is constitutional. If allowed to go forward, that requirement will decimate access to abortion and open up the floodgates for similar laws in other states. Joining us on the podcast are two of my colleagues from the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project, Bridget Amiri and Andy Beck, who just left the arguments and are eager to share what they heard. Bridget and Andy, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. So you have just left the Supreme Court. You just heard the argument in June Medical Services versus Russo. Before we get into the details of that argument, can you just tell us, this was a case about a trap law. What is a trap law? So a trap law, the word trap stands for targeted regulation of abortion provider. And what that is, is a law that purports to be about protecting patient health through a health regulation, but is in fact a unique onerous requirement imposed on abortion clinics that are designed as part of an anti-abortion strategy by anti-abortion politicians to close down clinics and make it impossible for them to keep their doors open. And so the trap law at issue in this case is an admitting privileges law, which may sound familiar to folks because it's the exact same type of trap law that was before the Supreme Court uh, a few years ago in a different case. You mentioned that the Supreme Court has actually already looked at these trap laws in a case called Whole Women's Health. In 2016, the court actually said that these kind of laws were unconstitutional. How did we find ourselves back at the Supreme Court with the same question? That's an excellent question that many of us were asking and that it seemed actually like some of the justices themselves in this case were asking. The Fifth Circuit basically disregarded the Supreme Court's decision in Whole Women's Health. So Whole Women's Health concerned an admitting privileges statute as well as a statute uh, forcing clinics to close unless they could become ambulatory surgical centers, which would cost, the record in that case showed, millions of dollars. These laws have nothing to do with advancing patient health and have everything to do with closing down clinics. So major medical associations like the American Medical Association and the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists weighed in, and the court relied on that kind of medical evidence to conclude that an admitting privileges law does nothing to protect patient welfare and strews burdens in the path of patients seeking abortion care. And because on balance, the burdens are so heavy and the benefits are non-existent, the law is unconstitutional. And that should have been the end of the matter for the Louisiana case because it concerned a statute that everyone agrees is identical to the admitting privileges law that was at issue in Holman's Health. But the Fifth Circuit essentially said maybe the benefits of this law would play out differently in Louisiana and maybe doctors could get privileges in Louisiana. And so based on essentially nothing but speculation, the Fifth Circuit decided that it would let this law take effect. And so the clinic had no choice but to ask the Supreme Court to step in and reverse the Fifth Circuit's decision. So that's how we found ourselves here. And Bridget, We've seen these kinds of trap laws in many other places. This one relates to admitting privileges, but that's something that's been a feature of many states' laws, right? 
That's right. And actually, at the ACLU, we have challenges pending to a couple of trap laws, including laws in Kentucky and Ohio that require written transfer agreements with the abortion health care center and a hospital. And again, these are laws designed to close clinics. And that's exactly what would happen in Kentucky if the law were to take effect. And in fact, it would um, close the only clinic left in Kentucky um, had it not been for our lawsuit and our success in that lawsuit thus far. And in Ohio, the written transfer agreement requirement is being used by the Ohio Department of Health to close clinics one by one in a very stealthy manner. And again, these laws have no medical benefit. And what did you hear today? Bridget, what were the highlights? What did each side argue? So, Our side, um, represented by the fabulous Julie Rickleman at the Center for Reproductive Rights, who is also one of my closest and dearest friends, just knocked it out of the park. And she made all of these arguments that we're talking about, that the law at issue would burden patients' access to abortion. Louisiana would go from three clinics down to one clinic with one provider. Those burdens are extreme on patients and even more extreme than the burdens in the Texas case in Whole Women's Health. So her point was, and rightly so, that when you balance the benefits and the burdens, as the courts must do under clear Supreme Court precedent, the burdens clearly outweigh the benefits, and therefore the law should be struck down as unconstitutional and the Fifth Circuit should be overturned. The Louisiana Solicitor General made a number of arguments that I think were not entirely reflected in the record in terms of the ability of doctors to get privileges. And I think one of the main themes from the state of Louisiana is that the doctors didn't try hard enough to get privileges. And uh, to be honest, I think a lot of her arguments were dishonest. And I think a lot of the justices were getting frustrated by some of her answers because they were not consistent with the district court's finding of the actual evidence in the case. Of course, one of the things that has changed between the time that Whole Women's Health was argued in 2016 and now is that we have two new justices. And Bridget, you've actually had the distinction of arguing an abortion case in front of Justice Kavanaugh when he was on the D.C. Circuit. And I wonder, most people think that those two Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh are the two that we really need to watch. What did you see from them today? Any indication on where they stand on this case? Well, it's interesting. With uh, Justice Gorsuch, she did not ask a single question of either side. So there's no indication of where he Hmm. is from oral argument. With Justice Kavanaugh, you're right. I argued the only abortion case that he had heard until today. And that was in the case involving Jane Doe, the unaccompanied immigrant minor who was prohibited from accessing abortion by the federal government when she was in a shelter that was funded by the government. And in that case, then-Judge Kavanaugh ruled that in a way that allowed the government to continue to block her access to abortion and uh, kick the can down the road, pushing her further into her pregnancy rather than applying clear precedent under Roe versus Wade, which says that the government may not ban abortion for anyone. And we had to ask the full D.C. Circuit to reverse his decision, and luckily they did, and Jane Doe was able to get the procedure that she needed. 
So here I was watching very closely Justice Kavanaugh's questions, as this is now his second abortion case in his career that he has presided over. And one of the things that he was focused on is whether admitting privileges laws are always unconstitutional. If they're unconstitutional in Texas, are they automatically unconstitutional in Louisiana? And that was really the question he asked a couple of times, and not many other questions, at least according to my notes, but that seems to be what he was focused on, and he seemed to be unwilling to say that if a law is unconstitutional in one state, it's automatically unconstitutional in another state. But other than that, I don't think we have any tea leaves to read from his questions. Interesting. So silence from Gorsuch and a bit more from Kavanaugh, but not quite sure where it leads us. But I wonder if you can forecast a bit, where do we think the justices will eventually come out here? Is there a way for them to reach some sort of compromise position? What is really at stake here? So... It's always really hard to predict how a court is going to rule, whether it's the Supreme Court or a lower court. And you never necessarily know how judges are going to come out just because they've said something in oral argument that might not manifest itself into what is in the opinion. So I'm always hesitant to try to have a crystal ball and predict how a court is going to rule after oral argument based on the questions they've asked. I agree with that. I also think Even the idea of a compromise here could spell real trouble for access to abortion in this country. And that's what really worries me about a case like this and worries me about the idea of people thinking about compromise and middle ground. Because in some ways, the way people look at abortion in the Supreme Court, if the court doesn't outright overrule Roe versus Wade, then people think, you know, the constitutional right to abortion is protected and all is well in the world. But on the ground, if that right doesn't have real bite and real meaning and protect the ability of folks to get abortion and clinics to keep their doors open, then it doesn't matter if the right exists on paper if no one can provide abortions on the ground, which is where a compromise could potentially lead. So I'm always wary about thinking about these decisions in terms of compromise because even if the right exists, if it doesn't have any vitality and actually protect the ability of clinics to provide abortion care, then it's sort of meaningless to a person in need of an abortion if it exists on paper. Wendy, you mentioned the sort of elephant in the room whenever an abortion case makes it up to the Supreme Court, and that is Roe v. Wade. And I've heard you describe Bridget as sort of a part of the strategy of chipping away at Roe v. Wade. It's unlikely that the justices are going to outright overturn it in the course of deciding June Medical Services. But these trap laws do represent such a grave risk to access to abortion that it would be essentially chipping away at Roe in practice, if not by law. That's absolutely right. And I would say when... Roe versus Wade established the fundamental constitutional right to abortion in 1973. Since that time, anti-abortion politicians have made it their mission to try to chip away at the right to abortion or to overturn Roe outright. And it's definitely the case right now that some people are living in parts of this country where it's as if Roe versus Wade was never decided because they can't access abortion. For rural people, for people with fewer means, um, the inability to travel to an abortion provider. There are several states that only have one abortion provider in the entire state. So as Andy was saying, the right exists on paper, but as the chipping away has happened, fewer and fewer people have the ability to access abortion. And that was a deliberate strategy on the other side's part, is to slowly push abortion out of reach 
hope that that wouldn't gain national attention. And then in this political moment, when they have a president who is so hostile to abortion and other reproductive health care, and the hope that the new justices on the Supreme Court will follow what the president has promised, which is that they would overturn Roe versus Wade, the other side has now been pushing for outright reversal of Roe. And we've seen that in all of the state bans that we have had to challenge and our colleagues at other organizations have had to challenge banning abortions outright or at the early stages of pregnancy that we've had blocked. But definitely even the idea to do that now is that they are emboldened and they're hopeful that one day soon Roe versus Wade will be overturned. If the court here reverses itself from Whole Women's Health and finds that Louisiana law is constitutional, what would be the immediate impact beyond Louisiana across the country? Could we expect to see more of these trap laws? Absolutely. I mean, as Bridget mentioned earlier, we're in the midst of litigating multiple challenges to trap laws with different variations in Ohio and Kentucky. But we know from prior trials on admitting privileges laws alone that those laws would shut down clinics and leave little to no options for people seeking abortion in in multiple states. If the Supreme Court were to bless this kind of law and give states and anti-abortion politicians the green light, these laws would have a devastating impact on abortion access across states, not just in Louisiana, starting with Louisiana, but it would quickly spill over to other states. Well, I was going to say the other really nerdy thing, like super nerdy thing to watch about this case is that the other side is also asking the court to take away third-party standing of doctors to raise the rights of their patients. And so what that means is that generally in our cases challenging abortion restrictions, um, the abortion provider challenges the law, the restriction at issue, raising the constitutional rights of their patients, saying that I will have to shut down and therefore my patients won't be able to access abortion. The state of Louisiana is saying that the Supreme Court should overturn decades of precedent and prohibit doctors from raising the rights of their patients. And that would also have consequences, devastating consequences for our cases, because you can only imagine how difficult it is for individual people to bring cases uh, challenging abortion restrictions when they're in the midst of seeking an abortion, both in terms of the timing, the burden of being a plaintiff, being subjected to discovery and trial. And it's been incredibly important that our doctors who have close relationships with their patients be allowed to assert the rights of their patients. Thanks, Bridget. No, that's important. We love nerdy legal details here at At Liberty. I know that your team is constantly going in and out of court, fighting laws left, right, and center. And I'm curious, it's barely time to come up for air, but what's next on your agenda? What is the next point of focus for the Reproductive Freedom Project? We are, in a lot of ways, just sort of playing um, whack-a-mole, right? Like responding to whatever new type of ban or trap law or restriction pops up in state after state after state. And so in some ways, it's hard to predict. I think a lot of our cases are entering a little bit of a holding pattern now until the Supreme Court's decision in the June case, because some of the judges in those cases want to see what the Supreme Court is going to say so that they can respond to it and, and apply it in those cases. So we're all kind of waiting for the next big move from the Supreme Court in June, which will come in June, at which point a lot of our cases will sort of exit their hibernation stage and, you know, all of the action will kick in again. 
a number of states are in legislative session right now. So a lot of the way that we bring our cases is a state will pass a law that's unconstitutional and we'll need to challenge it. And so states have just geared up for their legislative sessions in early January. And so we usually don't know until late spring what we're going to have to challenge. In the meantime, one of the other things to look forward to um, is on April 29th, the Supreme Court is going to hear argument where we will have filed an amicus brief about the contraception coverage requirement of the Affordable Care Act and the Trump administration's attempt to allow employers that have a religious or moral objection to providing contraception coverage to be exempt, effectively using their religious beliefs to take away a benefit otherwise guaranteed by law. So that's another big issue that we'll be working on, and we'll be back listening to Supreme Court arguments then. I'm curious what our listeners can do. You mentioned that we have to in many ways, wait to see what the Supreme Court rules in June on these important cases. And also, we need to keep an eye on our state legislatures. What else can people who want to keep access to abortion safe and legal in the United States do? There is so much that people can do. I would say you're right, plugging into your local state and federal politics in terms of letting your representatives know where you are on this issue and tell them that you want to see policies that protect access to abortion and not ones that restrict access to abortion. And I would also say contacting your local organization that's involved in reproductive rights and justice to see how you can get involved. And also perhaps the reproductive health care clinic as well. There is a tremendous infrastructure that exists in every state in this country that helps people access abortion, whether that's the clinic itself that's providing abortion, volunteer escorts that make sure that people can access the clinic, funding for abortion for people who can't afford abortion. And these are all ways that people can volunteer or contribute. Great. Thank you very much, Andy. Thank you very much, Bridget, for taking the time to speak with us fresh from the Supreme Court. And thank you more importantly for all of the work that you do on behalf of the Reproductive Freedom Project. Thank you. Thank you, Emerson. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Till next week, peace. Peace.